And boom, welcome back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winner, and I'm here as always with Dr. Bear Paul Lando, coming to you live and direct from the beautiful Smith River up here on the border of California, Oregon, in the great state of Jefferson. Uh, it is peak summertime, and it is weird out there. Yes, it's weird. Uh, we've got uh, smoky skies still, uh, overcast, weird weather, and uh, but my my plants are liking it. Uh, the farm's doing well. We're already moving into harvesting some of the Jiao Gulan uh, for our immortality teas. Uh, if you uh, aren't into Jiao Gulan yet, look, go to our website, alphavedic.com and check out that miraculous herb. It does so many things and is needed more than ever right now as the 5G attack is upon us here in Del Norte County. Just found out 5G has been brought to this county about three or four weeks ago and boom, we have a quote unquote COVID epidemic. Go figure, connect the dots people. So that's what we're up to, and we are assisting our community with uh, solutions to protect themselves and to stay healthy, and Jiao Gulan is one of the best things you can drink. So check us out at alphavedic.com. We also have our uh, EMF grounding bags there, which are an amazing technology as well that can really help assist uh, ground you in your house and um, as well as a number of other products, of course, the C60 and everything else we have there. So we are getting uh, hit up left and right by friends and family that are concerned about the uh, impending 5G coming everywhere. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that with our guest today, Hannah Maria, which who we're so happy to have on today. Uh, and one other thing too, if you are, if you've come over because you're in Hannah's camp and you're not, and you're new to Alpha Vedic, well, welcome. Uh, we're all about community here. And our community is thriving online. You can join us on our Telegram group at t.me forward slash alphavedic. It's a wonderful, very aware, awake group that is um, covers all bases. And we don't discriminate. Uh, if you are in a specific niche of truth, come on over. We're here to learn. And uh, that's something that we were talking about yesterday in the Telegram group. It's like we're seeing it more and more in the awake crowds of people uh, kind of getting separated separated according to their beliefs uh, based around certain things, whether you're a flat earther or, or you believe in the globe model, or now it's the con <clears throat> the convex or concave model, or if you believe in aliens versus demons or vegan versus paleo, or all these things that are dividing us, it doesn't matter. There's enough zombies out there to begin with. So let's all come together. Let's put that stuff aside and look at the bigger picture people. That's what we're all about here at Alpha Vedic. So Thank you uh, and welcome. And also you can join us on Discord at alphavedic.com forward slash Discord. And of course, if you're interested, we have our co-op, which you can get more involved with Alphavedic, get discounts on products and get uh, exclusive content. And that is currently at patreon.com forward slash Alphavedic. We will be getting off Patreon and all these platforms and using Cordal. Eventually, we're three, four months away from launching the first quartal data nodes so that we'll be uh, able to do decentralized web hosting and domains, which is going to be revolutionary. So follow us there at quartal.org and that's Q-O-R-T-A-L.org. Okay, today we have poet, songwriter, healer, and human and animal rights activist, Hannah Maria. Um, Hannah grew up in a tiny town in a Finnish forest, but man, does that sound lovely right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but her calling to explore the world led to an adventurous path of self-discovery and activism beginning at age 16. Hannah Maria's early travels ranged from helping the homeless in San Francisco to her work with Amnesty International and university studies in translation science and psychology that eventuated as a simultaneous um, interpreter in the UN peacekeeper, uh, keep, excuse me, UN peacekeeper trainings. Wow. Um, is it love to remain silent and watch the world burn? Quote unquote. In Hannah Maria's own words, Quote, as an interpreter, one has no voice. And I had a message of my own to share. In 2011, I started to find my true voice and the spiritual dimension of life began to reveal itself to me. My search to comprehend the inner and outer landscapes of life eventually took me to the cradle of indigenous wisdom, the Amazon rainforest. Together with her husband, she moved to Peru and immersed in five years of learning ancestral healing arts with the Shipibo tribe, specializing in the art of Icaros, or songs of prayer and healing. In 2019, Hannah Maria uh, founded Dawn of Peace, bringing together her love for activism and spirituality, and began forming a collective of peacemakers with the capacity to address a diversity of world issues from a holistic and compassionate perspective. Quote, our mission is to teach people about the spiritual reality of life, human and animal rights, medical freedom, and self-sovereignty. In response to a rising trend in government totalitarianism, Hannah Maria co-founded the International Police for Freedom Movement, educating police and civilians about our natural rights in order to build unity and rehumanize our societies. Hannah Maria states, quote, as a true lover of humanity, my heart rejoices at the sight of golden threads of human connection being weaved across the world right now. Through excruciating pain, we are finding our sacred boundaries again. We are remembering our purpose and our place in this creation. It is with great honor and gratitude that I carry the medicine of the ancients and continue to walk the path of service. I just got chills there, Dr. Lando. Um, we have an Aquarian with us. Definitely an Aquarian. <laughs> um, how are you doing today, Bear? Mike, um, I'm drinking my fresh Jaugerlan tea. And... <laughs> I'm sitting here talking to Hannah and yourself, and it just doesn't get any better than this. So I'm pumped. Let's do this thing here. <laughs> um, Hannah, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Um, I, I mean, I'm in awe of what you've accomplished and, and uh, you know, especially at your stage of life. I mean, you've just already lived uh, several lifetimes, I think. Uh, what I'd really like to talk to you today, uh, you know, we have some common interests, by the way. Uh, I already shared you. I have some, you know, one part of my family's from Peru as well. Uh, but um, I, I've had a long involvement with sound healing. And, uh, you know, in my years of practicing medicine, I, I boil everything down at this stage too. It's all about resonance. And, and you know, you're right in the, in the right ballpark there, I think. And I think a lot of what we're doing here, you know, on these forums and with the work that people like yourself are doing, we're creating a new resonance into the atmosphere. Now, you know, we can do it consciously through poetry and, and song and, and some of the things that, you know, we want to hear from you today. Uh, but just the uh, resonance that we spread by carrying, you know, the truth, hopefully for ears that will hear is, uh, you know, in my mind, the only real healing. Um, I, you know, started down uh, the truth-seeking path, we'll say in 1975, and 
started back then talking to any warm body that would listen about what's coming, which is exactly what we're experiencing today. So, um, you know, I don't want to make this talk into a downer or anything, but, uh, you know, one of the videos that I saw uh, that you did was, was brilliant and that you took the 10 stages of genocide and drew the parallels to exactly what's going on today. Now, I've been aware of those 10 stages by whoever the author was, I forget. And uh, it, it's just uncanny how you can just see it unfolding. And in my own experience, um, you know, I've witnessed in, you know, 40 plus years of practice, uh, you know, just everything turned into poison, including especially medicine, our food, our water, um, uh, you know, our minds through the educational and systems and media. And, you know, what's, what's most alarming to me, though, is this concerted all out of front has really affected, I believe, the will force of a lot of people, you know, really undermine their, their very will. And, uh, you know, that's the most disturbing thing. And that's uh, uh, what we need to get back. Now, I look at you and, and see what you're doing, and you are an amazing embodiment of the original Nordic spirit. And I love it. <laughs> and I hope uh, some of the male uh, members of our culture here in uh, North America kind of catch on and follow your lead. So, okay, enough uh, of me talking. Why don't we maybe start with a little bit of a history of uh, how you started. It's just an amazing story. And, uh, and then maybe bring us up to snuff press in time. And then we can, you know, maybe talk about some of these other things I mentioned, but we can always, of course, put it in the context of solution because I'm really uh, remaining an optimist. And I know there's greater forces behind the veil that are having our back right now, but it is incumbent to us to mobilize our own will force, open the door for that sort of help to come in. And of course, the real satanic agenda is to invert, uh, you know, externalize everything so that we never are able to access where all power comes, which is from inside of us. So Hannah, thanks again for being with us and um, take it away. Thanks so much. It's such an honor to be with you too today. And uh, wow, you have such a wealth of knowledge and uh, practice of, of true spirituality, both of you, that I just feel, I feel instant resonance and sparks just, just connecting with you. So um, history, oh, I, I grew up in a small town. It sounds, sounds amazing, right? Like I, I spent most of my life in, with the trees, but the downside of that was that I never really felt like I, I belonged in that community. So I have that kind of, uh, you know, traditional story of, of feeling like an outsider. So I was always looking for something else. Uh, it was a very kind of traditional community and very homogenous. And there was not a lot of room for alternative thoughts. So um, I, was, I was naturally pulled towards kind of the artistic community because that's where I felt that there was something different and there was something alive left. You know, like the, the part of Finland where I'm from is the kind of place where if you have to go to church at 11 a.m., uh, if you enter the church by 10.30, everyone's already there, but nobody says a word. It's like stepping into an empty church. It's just silence. So there was no culture of small talk or communication. Very, uh, yeah, 
introverted culture is where, where I where I come from. And somehow I don't know why I chose <laughs> to incarnate there, but it like really pushed me to go somewhere else. So um yeah, by the time I was 16, I moved away from home and I went to study expressive arts, theater and dance. And then by the time I was 18, I already I moved to California. So I quit high school and I said, oh, I need to go <laughs> even further. And that was a huge part of my journey is just going into a completely different culture. Because obviously, you know, especially Californians are very open and sunny and smiley and expressive and huggy. Whereas where I'm from, you don't touch each other. You maybe shake hands if you know each other. <laughs> like It's very uh, cold and Nordic in that way. Um, so it was a huge kind of liberation for me to get to go into another culture like that. And then when I turned, um, when I returned to Finland, I felt like I brought some of that back with me. And it was a, a good opportunity to integrate, you know, everything between these, these two cultures. And I got a little bit uh, kind of track, sidetracked and thinking that I need to get an academic career and... Uh, um, somehow pursue some kind of, you know, admirable career. So I, I went to study uh, translation science, linguistics and, and psychology. Um, and being a Gemini, it was easy for me because communication is, is my thing. But yeah, like, like I mentioned in that biography, very soon, uh, after about a year and a half, I came to see that it really wasn't um, where I was supposed to be. And it, it was to do with the fact that I, you have to have no character no, no will of your own, no word of your own. You are uh, completely invisible and you're just relaying messages and you have to be 100% faithful to it. So even if um, the other person is communicating something which I know is going to be insulting the other one, you can't change the message in between. So I was actually witnessing conflict being created and uh, cultural you know, misunderstandings and and even purposeful uh, entrapment uh, by translating messages that, yeah, I couldn't have a say over. So I came to see that that's not the kind of work I wanted to do um, because you are kind of powerless uh, in that position. And morally also, it was questionable for me because if I'm a part of this kind of communication which can lead to conflict, then I am responsible also, even if I'm just a silent member in between. So that was really interesting for me. To, that was kind of the first test, I would say, to say, like, what is your path? You know, do you really want to continue with this? So then I went back to the arts <laughs> and I moved to London, started studying theater again and dancing. And then um, that's where I met my now husband, who is a music producer and writer. And it was interesting, though, I must say, before I went to London, I'd already discovered this other dimension of reality. Uh, it happened spontaneously 2011, where I just began to see things that are that I wasn't normally able to perceive with my waking consciousness. But uh, it's like something was unplugged <laughs> from my third eye or something. And uh, I began to see energies and colors and lights and forms and, and even beings. And um, I didn't know anybody else who was having such an experience. So uh, the only way that I could deal with that was to write. So I began journaling uh, like every day. And one of the things I wrote when I decided I'm going to London was that I don't know why I have such a pull to go there. 
that I really don't think in the end of the day it is about theater, that there's something else there that is driving me there, but I have to go. And then it turns out that's where I, I meet my husband who had already been called to go and learn indigenous healing arts. So then when I meet him and he's just beaming this, this light of having, you know, been to the Amazon and, and you know, gone through hell and back, it was instantly recognizable for me that this is something that I need to experience also. So then we went together to the Amazon and uh, yeah, my, my intention was not to stay there or move there, but was just to journey within and, uh, you know, go deeper into comprehending what was this world that was opening up for me. And then as a result of that month that we stayed there, it was just the most clear path just that just opened for me that this, this is it. This is the thing that I've been looking for my whole life. That was where I felt most connected. And that culture was where I felt most at home. I, I, I hadn't found that place yet, you know. And the plants, uh, the, the mystical, magical, incredible, infinite wisdom that they embody was just, yeah, changed my life. So then we returned to London after that one month and my husband sold his music studio <laughs> and uh, we returned to Peru wow. and we started apprenticing with the tribe there. Yeah. That's it in a nutshell. Wow. That's amazing. I have a great comment here from Alma, who's from Finland, the land of Sisu, uh, that Hannah Maria so beautifully embodies. Some say you have to be a real badass soul to incarnate here. So, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So, so in the, from the Amazon, I remember you were in Costa Rica for a while too, were you not? Or were you always down in Peru? Because I remember when I first discovered you, you were still living down there, right? Yeah, yeah. In the Andes, yes. Okay, in the Andes. Okay. Most of the time I was in the Amazon, but also we, we had, we spent some time in Ecuador and in Chile also, but mostly, mostly in the Amazon. Yeah, so that was up till what, 2019, 2020, right? And then you moved back to Europe? Yes. So 2019 already, we, we got the guidance that you have to find land in Europe. You have to be closer to your families and you have to set up a kind of a retreat center here. And it was um, uncanny because, you know, we weren't aware of what is coming. We knew that there is some serious stuff in the making and we were starting to prepare as many people have been over the last years. Um, but the guidance was so clear that if we stay in Peru, because that was our original thought, that we will stay there and buy some land there and build a healing center there, that um, people will not be able to come there. It was just very clear, like, you need to go back to Europe and closer to your friends and families. So then 2019, we, we found this place where I'm now, and uh, we did everything, like, in, in turbo speed. We got yurts, we set up everything, 2019. Wow. And then 2020, we went back to Peru to... Um, yeah, because we have some land there as well to just collect some more remedies, make some more medicine. And then the lockdown began <laughs> and then we got stuck there for a couple of months. But uh, it was everything. Uh, the reason why I'm not so um, scared right now, even though the world has gone absolutely bonkers, is because according to my life experience, the guidance has always been there. 
I've always been let to go exactly where I need to be and exactly at the right time. So I know that whatever comes, we will all be guided if we have that connection open to do what is right in that moment. So I don't worry too much about the future or people ask me, oh, what, where are we going to be in the five years from now? I have absolutely no idea, but I'm not afraid because I know that the guidance will still be there then five years from now on. And, and who wants to know what's going to happen five years from now anyway? I mean, that's part of the adventure is uh, not knowing. And of course, a lot of your work is opening up people to that inner awareness so that they can develop that sort of trust and live moment to moment. And it's a wonderful thing. And, you know, I've proved that out in my own life that uh, if you just don't really worry about things in advance, and if you are always you know, making that connection, uh, you're always in the right spot. You always have all the support, everything that you need, and uh, everything works out way better than you could even imagine. And of course, now we have the, the other side that's trying to invert that, you know, reality so that people are planning their lives according to safety. Yeah. Yeah. But if you live in that illusion of constant safety, then there's no surprise element anymore. It's like people are, are, are killing surprise and miracles from their lives by, by constantly having to plan and control every single aspect of their lives. And that's really part of the, the spiritual poverty that we're experiencing in the West is that we don't give space for life to manifest itself around us through miracles and, and surprises. And it's so true what you said in the beginning about the willpower. I find that this was one of the most kind of uh, underdeveloped aspects of of me uh, when I went to study the, the ancestral healing is the power of the will because we're so used to getting everything served to us on a silver plate here in the west you know like we have water when you open the tap and you, you get the light by, by just clicking the switch that kind of me I mean we have to work hard still for our money of course but I mean like the way the everyday life the infrastructure is, is built here everything is just like automated right Whereas in the jungle, it's, it's a completely different reality. And uh, they raise themselves spiritually with these initiations where you have to force yourself beyond you know, any um, kind of perceived edge that you thought you have. You have to go beyond that. So you have all these like, incredible rituals and uh, spiritual practices that you have to take on to be able to work uh, as, a, as a healer, as a community healer or as a, as a spiritual healer. And of course, the, the, the term healer is something that is another kind of a taboo, you know, because uh, in the West, we have this thing like uh, everyone, um, everyone heals themselves, which is of course true. But the work of the healer is to inspire the healing in the other. So the healer has a job too. The healer isn't just doing nothing. The, the, he, like, the healer has to heal themselves first. And then through that, you are emanating that lived experience and then that resonance will inspire the other soul to heal but to be able to get to that point there is a lot of work that is required so before you can you know hold ceremonies or or have treatments with others it's yeah it's a road of many well initiations yeah well said you know what i find in my own experience is that you always have to stay uh, at least a half a step ahead of whoever you're trying to support, you know, if you're playing that role. And uh, sure enough, you know, whenever you're ready to uh, grow to that next level, there's always somebody that arrives on your doorstep that is going to force you to go there. 
And, uh, you know, for me personally, it was, you know, of course, you always do what you need to learn the most, right? And uh, for me, it was just, uh, you know, the, the, a chosen path that, you know, forced me to go there and all the uh, people that came to see me over the years, I don't know who was getting the most healing myself or them. And uh, so <laughs> I think you have that figured out. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a collective healing always like that. We, mm -hmm. we have an overarching. So also, so whenever somebody heals, then it heals an aspect of ourselves as, as well mm. as a consequence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, the, in the Amazon, because in the Eastern traditions, a lot of the quote unquote guru healers, they understand this notion of karma and that we are all connected. We are one. And oftentimes in the traditional guru, they would actually take upon themselves um, to take some of that karma upon them. And actually they would it, it, and sometimes get sick and pull the sickness almost out of those people and take it upon themselves. And that seems like a very Eastern kind of concept. And we could go down those those channels of thought if that's even a reality or not um but in the in the amazon did they talk about karma and about that sort of relationship to illness or to the psycho kind of uh physical connection there um i'm i'm in, i am interested to know more about what their philosophy is there yes um the word they use in the shipibo tradition is shitana and it means an accumulation of dark energy, which has come out of going against one's true nature and the nature of reality and nature of God, basically love. So um, when one does that, uh, it becomes visible in your, in your energy body and uh, even on a soul level. So uh, you can be carrying the shitana from your ancestors from many, many generations and from your own you know, individual life as well. So part of that the healing process that happens in a ceremony is for the passenger we call them passengers they're not patients they're passengers of life mm. so the passenger to to recognize where they come from you know where, where do these karmic burdens originate from so self-reflection self-inquiry is paramount in, in the ceremonial space and um another aspect of, of the karma uh, is that the, the healer cannot remove something from another until they've come to be aware of it, what it is. So, for instance, um, I don't know how deep we want to go with this conversation, but... Uh, oh, well, we can go deep. We can go deep. Okay. So, if we talk about demonic entities, um, th there's many. Um, I mean, um, based on my experience of treating people over the last four years... Uh, almost every retreat we have, somebody has a demon or some sort of an entity, but especially a demon. And um, there's many ways the demon can come in. It can come through something that's happened in the bloodline, which has never been reconciled and healed. So, for instance, through murder uh, or something like something like this, a very, very serious uh, spiritual crime. Um, or it can come in um, when... The, the individual has been in a, in a state where their spiritual vessel is open and the space is unprotected. Um, it can come in like this. Or um, so, for instance, if you are under the influence of certain drugs or, or alcohol uh, or, or any, any, any substance that alters your consciousness and there is not a protected space. Or if the individual themselves has done something 
which opens a portal. So for instance, playing with the Ouija board, this is quite a common thing. Uh, kids have done it a lot in the 80s and 90s without really knowing that it actually works and things can come in when you play this game. We've had several passengers come with this. They wonder where did the entity come from? And then they, when we pinpoint that, did they ever play the Ouija board? And then it comes, boom. Okay, that's where it came from. So, or through other kind of satanic rituals or, or, or uh, exercises like this. But until the individual becomes aware of the presence of the entity, it cannot go. It doesn't matter uh, how much the healer is, is trying to drive it out. So if you think of like the original exorcist that's trying to drive it out um, through force, it actually doesn't work because there's some kind of karma involved. Um, because of the way natural law works, we've been given free will and you would be interfering with a life lesson or a realization of the passenger if you just took it out. So it actually doesn't work like that. So when the, when the passenger becomes aware of the presence of this entity, then it can leave. Because then you suddenly realize that there is something in your, affecting your consciousness, which isn't you. And it gives you your power back to command it out and say, I no longer need you. And in this moment, the presence of uh, a healer in the space, a curandero or shaman, is to help guide this energy out so that it doesn't linger around and go bully somebody else. So then in that place is where the, the Icaros come in. And these are the songs of healing that um, you receive in the apprenticeship. And you don't get them from another human being. You get them from the spirits. That's how you learn the how to hold ceremony in the Shipibo tradition is you have to go into deep uh, practices of, of fasting and isolation for extended periods of time for, for months. Wow. And then when you establish communion, um, you begin to receive songs and the songs are unique to you and they are not to be used anywhere outside of the, the ceremonial space. And the more you sing them, the more you understand what the songs are for. And sometimes you even get a language with it a language that you don't know what it is, but when you sing it, you begin to understand what it means. So you get like a kind of a surgeon's toolbox of different, yeah, different tools that you use. Every song is totally unique and they have different oh. resonance and they're for different purposes. So does that culture use other mediums uh, leading up to that point, you know, uh, different elements of herbology or even hallucinations, yeah. you know, that, yeah. Yeah. So they so, would, they uh -huh. would use, but not necessarily. Um, traditionally, actually, the Shipibo only the the shaman would take the the plants that would enhance their vision and their connection to the spirit realm. So the the patient, or the the pa patient or the the pa passenger would not be taking this uh, like psychotropic medicine for for instance ayahuasca or or um, toe or or something like this. It would just be the the curandero. And then he would be the channel to, to do the work. But um, when the Westerners started going to the jungle, um, they discovered that actually it made the work a lot easier and more effective if the passenger themselves also was in a different state of consciousness. Because then it became an interactive experience and the passenger themselves could do a lot of the self-healing also. And, and it could open their... Um, they, it could you know, un help them understand the root 
of where these intrusions come from so that they wouldn't do those things again, which could lead to further, you know, spiritual problems. So mm. it's actually very effective when both uh, take some, some so sort of um, plant substance, which helps you to go into another state of consciousness. Yeah. I've, I've seen that be, um, of course, I'm talking about the American culture where it's a double-edged sword and mm -hmm. uh, people that, you know, dabble in hallucinogens uh, very often sometimes open their space to entities. And, you know, in my work, we acknowledge them very, very heavily. And at times we had a neurological basis of, uh, you know, when sequentially it was proper to address them. And then we would do all sorts of things in order to um, reset the nervous system so that person was in a better space to release it if they were ready. And then we also categorize different kinds of entities that different names that come from the old European culture, uh, doppelgangers, which means something you receive from somebody else or, you know, uh, obsessions and, and, and all sorts of things. So that, that's a very real thing. And there, um, yeah. as, as you know, real visible entities within, uh, you know, somebody's energy field. So uh, going back to the hallucinogen, so obviously, and I think it's real important for, uh, you know, our audience here to understand that when it's used uh, properly, um, you know, the, the practitioner really has to be in a place where they are not only vulnerable to these things themselves, but can hold that space so that whoever they're working with, um, you know, is not vulnerable and picking up some more baggage along the way too. So can you describe maybe some of the things that they would have to do to achieve that? Yes. So um, it would be first, first of all, what is called dieting, um, or in Spanish, they call it dieta. And that means that you take on an apprenticeship with the trees and the master plants of the jungle. And uh, what it what the diet means is, um, so in the indigenous context, when you talk about a diet, you don't talk about food, you talk about everything that you take in. So uh, the world of what you consume becomes completely uh, dedicated to this spiritual communion. So you isolate yourself and uh, you must do this under the guidance of a very experienced practitioner, a shaman. You can't do it on your own because you can go crazy and you know bad things can happen. So especially for us Westerners, because we are so used to constant stimulus and communication and, and uh, contact. So isolation without any kind of plant communions already is extremely demanding for most of our psyches but so you have to go into isolation and uh what this means is you're in a space where there's no pictures on the wall no paintings so completely empty canvas around you uh, you should be in a, in a in a natural setting so that there is no other kind of stimulus coming in just just nature and maybe some kind of a hut or a tent or a yurt or a cabin and um there's no internet connection at all no human contact no eye contact with anything just you yourself in the space uh, no reading no input at all of any kind but what you can do is express so you can journal you can draw you can create um, as long as it's of your own creation so it's a time when you don't and you can play music but not to play anyone else's music so it's all about going to to discover your own creative source um, and the way to do that is that you eliminate all other stimulus and external distractions. And in this um, prolonged period of, of isolation, you have a very specific diet. You only eat two or three different ingredients. 
uh, in the very traditional Shipibo diet, you would eat focaccico fish and uh, the non-sweet sour plantain grilled. So incredibly dry, bland food with, with no salt, spices, oils. You can't have any living foods because the living energy will interfere with your communion with this teacher tree. So no fruits, vegetables, nothing. So what I would eat, because I, I don't eat fish, is I would eat lentils um, or split peas and rice. And that would be once or twice a day and nothing added at all. Oh, that is and interesting. When you, yeah, when you receive the food, you also are not supposed to have any kind of communication. So someone else brings it to you and then, you know, from the behind the door and you pick it up and, and eat it. And uh, other things that are important as well, you're not supposed to be in direct sunlight because you become incredibly sensitive to energy and what you are building basically, okay, this can sound very far out for people, but I'm just going to go for it and share. So um, you're building, like, imagine that you have a little sprout, uh, which is the connection, the sprouting connection with you and that master plant. It can be a tree or a bush or a shrub or a flower. And... Um, you need to create an environment for it where, where it's fertile ground for this to start to sprout. So if you go into direct sunlight energetically, it overpowers this, this fragile connection. So you need to guard it. You need to be in the shade. And um, all of this, this food and all of this environment that you create helps you to heighten your awareness inwards and to begin to perceive the life of this sprouting connection of this other being and uh when i first heard that trees can talk to you and give you songs and teach you about the world and the universe and about yourself i thought that was i couldn't believe it i thought it's literally unbelievable like it, it can't be that this is some kind of metaphor but then when it actually begins and you begin to perceive another presence with you it's i i there's, there's no words for it but, but it's just, uh, it's miraculous. It's, it's amazing. And this is what the indigenous people have on a regular basis because they live in a natural environment where there is nothing else intruding their consciousness, no black magic coming from Hollywood films or advertising. They are always open to, you know, receive and transmit and communicate with the natural world. So you have to have these diets and how many of them you need, how many years of dieting you need, depends on how, how well you do them, how disciplined you are. You also have to be celibate the whole time. So it would take several years of these kind of uh, spiritual communions and fasting before you can actually sit in a ceremony, for instance, with ayahuasca, and be able to perceive with clarity what is happening in that space energetically. Because that's what's required of you to be able to assist the others, is to be able to see what kind of energies are being expressed, what, what is being purged out, you know, and what kind of... Because you need, to, you need to... The work that you do is you bring in beings that can assist in the healing process of the passenger. So you, you cultivate these relationships in, in the spiritual communions. And this is where it's really defined what kind of a practitioner you become, what kind of beings you, you begin to collaborate with. And there are, you know, many, many different ways that you can hold ceremony because it, it's all based on what songs you receive, which spirits you connect with. And not all of them are good. You know, some are connecting to, to beings that 
are out to harvest people's energies and out to manipulate. And others are connecting to celestial, you know, angelic beings and, and pure spirits from the natural world. So it takes a lot of spiritual tests also for the, for the apprentice to learn to differentiate and discern between different spirits. Because there's also, you know, shapeshifters and beings that can, you know, morph. So you need to learn to read the underlying kind of pure energetic signature of the being so that you can recognize them in the space as well. Who is who? Wow. So every, go ahead, Mike. I was, well, I was just going to say what I love is uh, this idea of synchronicity or synchronism that uh, across cultures across the world that are tapped into the natural law and into the cosmic flow all have the same narrative from the indigenous cultures to the druidic cultures of Europe to ancient Egypt to the Far East. It's all the same. It's so cool to see that this re these remote people down in South America in the jungles are talking about the same stuff as the ancient Celts, you know? So anyways, I just love that. And everything you're talking about is uh, spot on with all my research. Um, and I want to go do some of that. So <laughs> um, that sounds so fun and cool, man. Go ahead, Bear. So Hannah, I was just going to say, um, you know, everything you're talking about sounds very intuitive and common sense and, you know, just makes sense. And so in contrasting from where, you know, Western cultures are now, and, and you put out a term black magic, you know, it is a real hypnotic, purposeful spell that's been cast over the population. And, you know, we wonder why people are so easily duped, let alone, uh, figure out some way to prepare them for a real inner journey, uh, you know, that you're talking about. So is there any um, hope for people, you know, the average person in a Western culture to somehow create a bridge so that they can get from an absolute hypnotic control to a place where they're even open to something where they can explore the way you're describing? Yeah. That is what I've been <laughs> examining over the past year and a half as well. But it's so poignant, the, the comparison you're making, because um, I feel that one of the reasons why it was for me very easy to spot that this is all a hoax was because I I'd, I'd had to learn how to recognize spells and black magic in my spiritual practice so that they can be broken and, and the people can be spiritually liberated. So then when this, this COVID thing started, it was very easy to see that this is just uh, just a big, big spell. Um, so the, the, how it works in, in a ceremony is when these deceitful energies become revealed is by, by truth. So you have to name them for what they are. And, and I feel like that is the first part of this awakening is name it for what, what is happening outside, but also name you for who you are. What is your true nature? So when these two aspects begin to align, like, okay, this is who I really am. This is what they're trying to tell me that I should be. Uh, it, it be there begins to be a, a very profound kind of uh, dissonance on a spiritual level. And it, it will lead to either further uh, distortion of, of, of the person's perspective and, and more kind of self-betrayal and self-abandonment, or it will lead to awakening and, and the wanting to, you know, harmonize and align 
these uh, realizations. So what is the, the recipe to guarantee that the realization will take you towards awakening and not towards further lies and distortion that I haven't discovered yet? I think it, it has to do with the, the soul journey, you know, the maturity of that soul, uh, the readiness for them to come to see the truth of their, their nature and the truth of the external world. But I'm all about yeah. saying things for what they really are. I think that is um, yeah. what we have to do. No more sugar coating or PC. You know, I think that is that is distorting our perception too much. You know. Yeah, and of course, uh, the PC is very purposeful to try to silence us. And you know, I'll even find myself in mixed company sometimes, where I find myself prefacing. Um, you know, in an apologetic way, uh, you know, things that I'm about to say, well, I'm not one of those. I don't, you know, and then I catch myself and I'm like, wow, uh, the programming is so pervasive that we're all uh, feeling apologetic just for saying our truth. So, you know, even in the natural health community uh, in the Western world, I think there's been a little bit of hijacking going on and uh, you kind of opened the door to dietary practices there. Now, I've always thought that diet was more of a reflection of where you were on the consciousness level. And I never believed that diet as an external is, you know, what you do to change yourself. You know, we've got that in reverse, too. Uh, you know, about 40 some odd years ago, I got a loud voice that said, yeah, no more flesh food. So I quit back then. And it wasn't about health. It wasn't about, oh, it's toxic or or hard on the digestive system. It was about, again, going back to the the understanding of resonance. So we find ourselves now with a large part of the health oriented community that's in the paleo. And we even get a little flack on this show, you know, when we'll have people on that are practicing vegans, or I myself might even say, eh, you know, I, I don't, you know, eat meat. And, um, you know, and people, you know, say, oh, you look unhealthy and skinny. And, you know, you guys are killing yourself. And, and, uh, you know, I look at you, Hen, and you look pretty healthy to me, uh, <laughs> not only uh, physically, but you're kind of radiating from the inside out. I don't know if anybody could look any healthier. So uh, what do you think's going on there? Mm. Well, I think um, it's all to do with life force and uh, the fact that trauma um, kind of sucks us dry, you know, makes us hollow. Uh, we are constantly leaking our vital life force into our trauma memories. And even on a soul level, you know, in, in, the, in the spiritual practice, we talk about soul loss. So um, this is language we use to, to, to describe the, the fragmentation of the, the, the wholeness, the entirety of an individual. So, for instance, if one would have... Um, uh, a very severe trauma at the age of seven, then at that time, an aspect of their self would linger in that uh, painful experience. And they would go on living their lives without that part of themselves fully integrated. Uh, so we call it soul loss. And um, the more we have these kind of traumas, the more fragmented um, the soul becomes. And so it's like you imagine that there are these leaks of, of energy that are constantly, um, yeah, going away from you. So what I discover is that when you begin to heal yourself, 
the less you need the substance, which would be uh, the flesh uh, of another animal, which in some way still stores the life force of that being. So I see it very much correlated um, that when you've come to heal those deepest woundings and you've called those aspects of your soul back home and you've integrated yourself, um, then you need very little substance uh, from the outside. Even, you know, some people practice breatharianism. So I wouldn't say that uh, it ends when you stop eating animals. Uh, you know, that's one step. And then maybe you start eating more plants and then you start only eating living plants. And then you start practicing dry fasting, maybe. And then at some point you become breatharian. So I think it's a kind of evolutionary journey. And, um, you know, those people who say that the indigenous oh, they all uh, eat animals. Well, there's a lot of evidence that they didn't always do so. That it was only after the invasion of the conquistadors who drove them out of their lands that they had to go into environments where they were no longer able to practice such you know, natural um, permaculture ways that they had of cultivating the land and they had to start hunting. Um, mm, yeah. And also there is a difference in, in the way that they... Um, the true indigenous people, you know, there's obviously the Western world is very much influencing them now. So any communities that are near the cities are losing their culture very fast now. But those communities that still live, you know, according to their, their sacred culture, they, they don't see the animal in the same way that we do here in the West, where it's just an object, you know, or some a way to quickly satisfy uh, your taste buds for five minutes in a in between a sandwich so um for them it would be a very serious thing to take the life of another and they would do a ritual and everything around that so it's not really you know compatible though those two two realities but yeah i think it's all about the life force and that we kind of are fulfilling some kind of void inside with the help of taking the body of another yeah and to to bears point too and that was beautiful thank you hannah because this is one of the most diverse di divisive topics right in the world it really what i was talking about at the beginning of the show right like how uh, the veganism versus paleo or even the carnivore scene right now and it really is to me yeah what bear said a reflection of the consciousness consciousness of the individual but also the society and the world at large and in this piscean age which we're coming out of we saw that it was very much top-down, predator class, centralized focused, warlike. And what does that reflect? That reflects the predator in us to go out and hunt and to, to take the lives, right? To get sustenance from. And versus the more Aquarian notions of, of the air, getting sustenance from the air, getting sustenance from spirit, which is what we're moving into. And I think it's brilliant that we're having these conversations that and that with stuff like breatharianism and this, which we've done sh full shows on here, because we all need to go there. We need to get out of the, the dense Maya of materialism, which is what this conversation is typically grounded in, in your classic Joe Rogan discussions and stuff, all about the chemical side and the proteins and all of that, and reach higher and towards what really is the food of the spirit and how that relates to the body. And so you are glowing with, with like just an essence of energy. And I see that with people who are going about 
sustenance in the right way versus a traditional, a lot of vegans I know are still coming from the point of Maya, of materialism, and they aren't healthy just in the same way as somebody who is steeped in this, uh, this idea of being a um, carnivore and just eating dense, dense meat all the time. Um, and as Bear has said in the past, you might actually get some really nice health benefits from that at first. And then, because um, it may be fixing a couple of those those problems you have physically, but in the end, it ends up going downhill again. And I think it is a reflection of that old Piscean, Piscean age that we're leaving of the predators, of the need to, uh, to, to go take from others for your own. And... Um, Versus and and yeah, and there's energetics and plants. Of course, we talk about this. How the plants are living, the plants are consciousness, and even even plants, you're taking that from them. So um, it's a really interesting topic, and I love where you're coming from it. And I do think that more and more people and and science is even starting to finally show that energy comes from the sun and light and and the air, and we can we can really go to a much more, I don't know, evolved ideas in terms of how we get our sustenance. So um, thanks for that. And um, really interesting too, about how you were saying the indigenous people being permaculture masters. And I don't know if you've seen some of the recent uh, discoveries in the Amazon, but they're finding that those were actually massive, that the Amazon forest itself, the jungle was a garden, a massive garden that was designed by humans. And that that's why it's so beautiful and amazing is that the original gardeners were the humans that were doing it. And that's something that we have to remember is that we have a divine purpose on this planet to cultivate it. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, that's any, one of the, yeah. I would say that that's one of the kind of uh, first profound uh, messages and realizations I received in the jungle was that uh, humans are here to enhance nature. Because I, I asked, you know, in one of these ceremonies, I asked, in my in my spiritual communion that what would this world look like without humans and uh it was like taking the spirit away uh, and uh, this is totally opposite to the narrative that the the satanists are wanting to put into us which is that we are the virus and somehow the world would be so much better off without us but it's not true if you look at the the garden of any loving gardener and you look at just a regular forest you see that, wow, the, you can help the, the plants to really, you know, blossom in a different way when you pick their dead parts and you help them. You are, you are that loving touch of the creation. So we have that creative power and, and it, it breaks my heart when people are going against uh, this knowledge that we are actually enhancing nature when we are, when we are spiritually healed. So I don't see that human is by its nature somehow uh, this destructive force. Uh, I see that it's it's a spiritual sickness, unfortunately, which has taken us into this place where we we are just the white vampire, as they say in the in the jungle, the the pistaco, which is the white vampire that just sucks everything dry, and comes only to use and to steal. And that's what we have been for quite some time. But it's enough about that now. It's time to, like you say, you know, evolve into a new age. And I do see signs of that everywhere. More than ever, it's we're in an accelerated yeah. growth right yeah. now. Uh, one final little comment about the whole animal versus plant thing. You know, um, there was a time I kind of prescribed to this school of thought that uh, before our fallen consciousness, we were in fact the ones that um, 
created the plant life and everything in the first place. It was our canvas to create on. And I believe we have a destiny, um, you know, that we will fulfill, that we will create new species of plant life and so forth. Now, along the way, uh, you know, when the fall first started, you know, in consciousness, then we were, uh, you know, still more into our powers of manifestation at the same time. And then our lower, uh, you will say, emotional bodies and things started taking form, which was the origin of what we consider animal life. And, um, and you know, these are, you know, from teachings that have been around for a long time. And so in contrast, um, you know, when we uh, domesticate animals, for instance, you know, we're taking them, you know, especially with pets, you know, we're loving them and, you know, we're freeing them from that embodiment that is, you know, where that universal energy has been trapped for a long time into a lower form of consciousness. And, uh, you know, that happens with all domestication. So I'm told. Uh, now, in contrast, plant life, you know, as you said, you know, there's consciousness behind trees and, and every species in the botanical world. And, you know, when you were conscious, I just them, have to show realize, as you're talking about oh, that. I have oh, my fantastic. two dogs, right? <laughs> Who just came to there say hello. <laughs> as yeah. soon as you talked about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> No, perfect. And, you know, that's why we love our animals uh, so much. There's a, there's real communication and we are in, in fact, loving them out of, you know, the trap that they're in. Uh, in contrast, uh, you know, plant life, their real consciousness that you learn, you know, we're on a farm here, we grow things, we have our hands in the dirt every day. And you communicate directly with that. And just like you said, the more you learn that communication, the better things grow. And, they, you know, it's a different form of sustenance that comes from that. It's not uh, a trapped embodiment. And for sure, it's not something that's going to be uh, full of uh, fear and everything when it's slaughtered that then you bring into your own body. So it goes back to that residence. So eating a plant-based yeah. diet is a whole different residence. And uh, yeah, and animal food can be a transitionary step to a plant base. And I think you outlined it perfectly. And that's why when we talk about diets on our show, we always talk about it's a transitionary process. There's yeah. no right or wrong diet. It depends on where you're at. So let's, I think do, we're going to go you, into something more. Well, can I, add to that? <laughs> can, I, can I say something real quick too? I'd love to say as well. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Mike. Well, I was just going to say in the Bible and the gospels, Yeshua, what's he do? He, he, he fishes. They, and he says, obviously, to the, to the apostles, be a, a, a fisherman of men. But what are they eating? They're eating the flesh of fish. And maybe that was the transition into the Christ consciousness was it did take a little bit of flesh because they literally were eating the fish. And I think maybe in terms of flesh foods, that might be one of the better transitional foods is all I was going to say. OK, that's interesting because I've I've. Um came i've come across an interpretation that that is actually not in the original texts and the fish is a representation of a babylonian god and this is why the pope has the fish hat mm -hmm. uh, because he's representing this babylonian energy that it's actually not the uh, and then the original well i don't know if you've heard of the essenes of course in the essene gospels they don't talk about uh, that eating book. fish yeah this, this book has saved my life many times, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And about uh, the, another difference between um, eating animals and, and plants spiritually is that um, animals have an individuated soul and uh, overarching soul. So they are 
like humans in a sense, um, at least, you know, most animals, there are the, some we can go into which animals maybe don't have an individuated expression at all, maybe some insects, but uh, most animals and certainly all mammals have an individuated soul expression also. So this is why when taking the life of an animal is different than taking the life of a plant, because plants don't have individuated soul expression. They are only overarching collective consciousness. And how you know this for a fact is if you commune with plants in a spiritual setting, uh, it doesn't matter which vine of ayahuasca you cut, you will always meet the same spirit, the same consciousness. So it's not uh, encapsulated in just one single vine or one single bush, the plant, it's, it's an overarching. So if you take a carrot, you're not killing that soul, you're taking an aspect of it. And furthermore, you can put it back into the earth and it will grow a new body. Whereas you can't do that if you cut a leg of a pig or a dog or a cat, it, mm. it's gone. And then another interesting aspect is why do all the dark occultists use blood in their um, you know, ritual murders? I don't call them sacrifices because you can't sacrifice something that isn't yours. So when you take the life of another, it's not sacrifice, it's just murder. So when they do ritual murder, they don't cut cabbage or, or apple or carrots. They must cut something that has that soul, individuated soul expression, which is in the blood. So for me, that is a very clear uh, difference between eating plants and eating oh, animals. Yeah. And what I've seen as well uh, is the energetic consequence of this bloodletting, you know, ritual murder that is happening to the animals on, a, on a, our collective, you know, on the collective of the earth is devastating. So the more of us can stop, you know, fueling our energy into that horrendous like machine of darkness, then the more the earth has space to breathe and heal as well. That's uh, amazingly put and that distinction between the individualized soul versus a collective. Uh, it's, it's so important. I'm so glad you put it that way. Oh, Hannah, I love you so much. You, <laughs> I, I, so I threw out the gospel idea because we we're talking about it in the chat and you were dead on with that. And it makes so much sense with the symbolization of the fish with the Piscean era of war and destruction and how the Catholic church, the Romans put all that narrative in. I mean, it makes total sense to me. It really does. And yeah, it's just so brilliant on so many levels right there with what you hit with the truth of all that, with the with the the blood and everything. I mean, yeah, spot on. I couldn't agree more. Um, perfect. Cheers. I, I got to say, Mike, because you said that you would love to do some of that uh, spiritual communion yourself. Well, we come every year. Well, we have come to California to commune with the redwood trees. They are our Ooh. biggest spiritual teacher. And we come to Northern California for that. So if you ever oh. wanted to learn how to do that, I could, I could share how to do, I, <laughs> how to I, do it. I hug, I hug a redwood tree about once a week. I go run yeah. in the redwoods about every three days. So uh, I am right there with you. I'd love to hang out with you in the redwoods. Uh, <laughs> you know what I just found out from a friend who's visiting right now is that there was redwoods in Japan. Did you know that? Very they have brought, yeah, they brought specimens to around the world now. There's some in Australia as well. Yeah. China um, as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, yeah, I think uh, I was just thinking too, going back to the blood sacrifice and, and how in the Old Testament, how there's this narrative of sacri- quote unquote sacrificing sheep. And I've recently been doing more research on the God of Yahweh, the Old Testament was actually the the inversion of what true God is. And that was actually the evil force, supposedly of the yeah. chosen people. And that it's very interesting that a lot of what we deem to be truth in the Bible was actually inversion. Um, so, and I think if we want to know truth, you're doing the right way, which is what we talk about, which is going inside, going to meditation, going to the, to the, to the natural spirits and the indigenous kind of um, notions of what spirituality is versus going to these uh, traditional texts that could very well have been doctored and manipulated by the ones in control. Yeah, and I have to also say as an as an interpreter that uh, the language that was used in the original texts, uh, like Old Testament, for instance, was a collection of different uh, scriptures, and they had several different deities that they were addressing to. Uh, I think some source I came across was something like 30 different deities with different names, but when they uniformed the scriptures and they translated it, they just gave one name to all these 30 or or some different deities and some of them like you said evil forces and they all said god so that's why when you start reading through the old testament you start realizing why the god seems so schizophrenic and contradictory and kind of you know just yeah mad because it's not one person that they're talking about they're talking about several different spirits and when i discovered that it was like wow now i understand it really made sense to me yeah, it does. Uh, and, and also makes sense in that there are people to this day that are worshiping different deities <laughs> and, um, you know, and not always to the best interests of the collective. And uh, maybe that's a segue into, is there anything uh, that you think we should discuss relative to what we see going on out in the world today? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's a mirror. To, to see how far we have gone out from, from the natural way and from truth. It's like literally everything has become inverted. Everything is the opposite of what it should be. So my, my remedy is just to you know, focus on the hermetic principle of polarities and just really diagnose every single thing and come to see what is the underlying principle energy and then you apply the opposite and it will reconcile the extremities and bring some kind of equilibrium so if they're trying to say that we have to you know isolate them it means we have to come together unless you're doing a spiritual communion then it's okay to isolate <laughs> but, but if we have to stay in isolation you know and not see our families then we should definitely see our families as you guys have been doing with that beautiful festival there in california this is exactly the remedy what we have to do and when they say that we have to be in fear then we have to just find ways to generate joy and when they say we have to be enslaved by the pharma industry, then we have to, you know, empower ourselves with, with knowledge of self-healing and natural remedies. And so everything is just apply the opposite. And that is the way, really simple. Yeah. And, and on our land here, you know, we're, I can look out my window here and there's a little crew of people here that have all come here to help us on the farm. We're building a new greenhouse and a new little laboratory and and all sorts of things and some of these people are all moving here from other parts of the world so and i hear this all over the world that there are little 
micro communities forming, you know, where we pull our skills, our resources, we're helping each other out. And I don't see any um, mask out there. And uh, there's sure no shortage of hugs around here either. So, um, you know, it's I think the message is, is we just have to withdraw our energy and create our own world. Um, and, you know, what I found is um, I think uh, my years in practicing medicine, it was really more of a, a training, you know, for what we're going on right now. And then it's just taking that inner awareness that you naturally get when you, you know, you do this kind of work of how to use that on a larger scale, which is, you know, why we're all here today. And um, so, and, and of course, you know, you've taken your understandings to the, to the world stage and you're making, you know, uh, your pretty loud voice out there. So, um, you know, it's not a matter of saving anybody. We can't do that, but I think there are still some folks that are awakening. And what do you think perhaps are, are voices mattering? Are they making a difference at all as far as getting the truth out there to, you know, people that might still be a little asleep, but don't want to stay that way? Yeah, that's a, that's a really important question. Something that um, I feel a lot of us in the freedom community are, are exploring mm -hmm. and contemplating is that, is it, are we just wasting our energy going to the streets and doing this? Should we just now put all of our energy into building community and parallel society? Well, my experience of being on the streets every week is that there is a huge number of people who are just now starting to realize that there's something very wrong. <laughs> and it, it feels incredible, but it's because we have this confirmation bias because we are living in these bubbles of already very aware people and we've been there for years. So for us, it seems like ridiculous, the idea that someone would have never heard of alternative ways to find out information, but that's the reality. That really is the reality. Most people up prior to 2021 didn't even know that there's another search engine besides Google, you know, or that there are alternative social media channels or Telegram or, I mean, it's unbelievable. So what I'm seeing is that there, there is this real domino effect of people starting to like be aware that, okay, like I may have been lied to my whole life <laughs> and they are just now because it's becoming so glaringly obvious that this is not about health anymore because they're bringing out these COVID pass everywhere in Europe. They're starting to say, okay, maybe I am interested to begin to listen to the other side and, and more and more so. But, but uh, so I would say just to keep doing what we're doing and, and not have to choose between, we can, we can share our time between talking to our community. I think that's the most important thing, local activism and do it from a place of genuine care and just concern and say, have you heard of this? Have you looked into that? And not try and push anything, just a few questions here and there with the energy of concern that that does a lot. I don't think we can change anyone's mind much on the internet unless we do a really good video, but the debates, the total waste of energy. If anyone who starts debating online, I just don't engage because they're not out to learn anything. So um, I would just say to, to communicate with our local community, do street actions where we live or in the surrounding areas and through that begin to create a circle of trust and, and then that community. But there's so many people like every, every week we go, uh, once a week we hold a little demonstration or manifestation on the street. And every time there's people who come to us and say, I didn't know you're here. I live in this town. 
I was like, whoa, we've been here only since uh, June last year. What? I never saw you guys. I thought I was the only one who's awake. And, and how can I join you guys? And, and then next week they bring someone else. And it's constantly growing. It, it's amazing. You, you'd think that everyone's already awake who should be awake. But no, they're like, they, there's so many constantly. Yeah. That's my experience. Yeah, and especially in, in like the police and the doctors and the nurses and the teachers. That, that's like a, a community of people that has really been shaken up now. Yeah, we're, um, it's interesting. This, it, uh, one great act that you can do is just be out in the public without wearing a mask because then others will see you without a mask on and feel empowered because maybe there's a tickle inside them saying, maybe I don't think this mask thing's working. I'm a year and a half into it and nothing's changing. Is this going to be yeah. the new reality? Oh, that guy's not wearing a mask. He seems really vibrant and healthy and he's got a big smile and he seems happy in his life. Ooh, and I've I've gone to places in town here, you know, because I don't I choose to not wear a mask, and I've seen people then pull their mask off, and um, it's a simple simple act to do. So um, yeah, it is a, is an interesting thing. And one thing I will say, there's a difference between asking the government or asking the authorities to be to be allowed to come out of the lockdowns, be free, and then going and decreeing we are sovereign, we are free enough. And I am seeing more and more of that now in these large protests in Europe where it's not like, hey, when are we going to end the lockdowns? It's like, no, we are ending the lockdowns because we are sovereign. God gives us our rights, not government. And that's yeah. where the natural law stuff comes in that you're, you so poignantly um, bring up in this discussion. Um, that you mentioned the police and yeah could you go a little bit into what you're doing with the police because obviously in the states here that is a, that it was been weaponized uh with the black lives matter and uh different um uh you know so, so i guess from the from the look of it well-meaning groups but when you actually dig in you see there is actually a, a psychological warfare going on with there and, and once again the satanic inversion and play there and it's pitting the police against the population in a way that has been highly destructive in the united states and i'm and i know that that same thing happened uh in europe too the last few years what have you seen and and what's going on with what you're doing with the police because this is really great work yeah well, firstly, I'd like to say that I used to identify myself as, a, as an anarchist, but this last two years has kind of dropped all the isms from my identity. because I'm starting to see that, you know, if, if we just say, oh, the police are just, you know, pawns of tyranny and we want nothing to do with them, then, then they we're never going to solve anything like we have to just start to build bridges. So I came to see um, that police are just as um, divided as we are. So there, there are those in them who genuinely became a policeman because they wanted to catch the bad guys. They wanted to get the murderers and the rapists and the child traffickers and the, and the politics and all the, you know, the liars and the thieves. They genuinely joined the force to do that. And then there are those who just wanted a good career and didn't really care, wanted a nice pension, wanted to get out early. Um, and then there are those who are a little bit psychologically disturbed and they want to, um, they have this illusion of authority that they want to express in that uniform. And that is kind of the, the part of the police force that is easily connected to all these secret societies, you know, uh, Freemasons and, and what have you, Rosicrucians and Knight, Knights Templars. So the group Police for Freedom 
what we are about and and i i co-founded this internationally because here in spain it started organically just one woman police woman who had already been speaking out for years that the police needs to really um have a, a some kind of makeover that they they are losing humanity and they are being boxed in more and more energetically and physically they're starting to have to wear costumes that look like you are the, the terminator and that they are starting to lose humanity and um that we need to incorporate emotional intelligence and mindfulness and all these practices to the training of a 21st century police officer so she was already campaigning about awareness and uh, while working in the police and then when this uh this medical tyranny just raised this ugly head she started speaking out as a police officer and then she started this uh por la libertad police for freedom in spain and started gathering other police and they started holding marches and that was incredible because prior to that the marches would have quite a lot of conflict with the on-duty police uh, but when the police start to march then the on-duty police can't touch you because they don't go against their own people there's some kind of loyalty there it just does not happen so when i joined one of their marches in valencia last year in the autumn it, it was the one of the most spiritual experiences of my life i gotta say i had shivers down my spine we saw things it was like incredible the energy there it was just pure joy people walking and feeling so safe and the police marching at the front it really felt like that's the way this world should be that the police are with us you know and the people were chant chanting that this is our police this is our police we are free and it was just Amazing. And I, I started talking to this woman, Sonia, Sonia Vescovacci, who started the Police for Freedom here. And I said, look, does any of you guys speak English? Like this has to go worldwide. Like we have to make this international. And she said, none of us do, but you do. So you have to do it. <laughs> you have to start the international chapters. I'm not a police. Yeah, but you're an activist. So you just do it and police will find you. And I was like, frick, okay, I'm going to do it then. <laughs> and I just said yes to it. Because so far, I've, I've discovered that whenever you say yes to these things, it's just amazing things happen. So, so then in, in, in February in Barcelona, we launched this, this movement. And now we have already eight countries on board. We have almost all of Australia covered. We have Finland, Denmark, Sweden. We have France, um, Netherlands. We have Poland, Canada even as well, Quebec. So it's growing really fast. And we're getting contacted by police who are spiritual, who have a spiritual practice, who want to protect the future of their children, who know about natural law, who absolutely agree with natural law. And they say that they, it should be voluntary, like the practice of the police. They don't believe in this kind of forced hierarchy. You know, they don't see themselves as some kind of, you know, pawn of the tyranny. They see themselves as kind of the guardian angel of the of the community, that that's the work they should be doing and so they're, they're getting really fed up they feel humiliated by the fact that they they who signed up to be catching bad guys have to be harassing peaceful people because they're not wearing a mask on a beach or they're not keeping their security distance whatever the heck that means or you know it, it it's humiliating for them it's degrading for them so there's a huge number in the police of people who are starting to see that there's something very wrong in this and they're they're getting they're starting to take action and they're starting to speak up. So can we get you over here to the States and do your thing over here? <laughs> How will I get there with some kind of boat? <laughs> Three months travel. <laughs> We're working on no, we, uh, 
Yeah. We're working on teleportation. <laughs> we sure, yeah. Sign we we sorely need it here. You yeah. know, we, well, we've you been in education. Go ahead. Sorry. You have the thick red line project. Have you guys heard of that? That's a project of police. That's a project of police that are teaching about how victimless crime is immoral. And they're talking about natural law and freedom there as well. So it is starting in, in the States also. The thick red line. In the United States, we have more people, I believe, in the penitentiary system than in any other country in the world. And we also have a police force now that is unfortunately trained to enforce statutes that go 100% uh, contrary to our Bill of Rights. And unfortunately, also, they're indoctrinated to think they're doing the right thing. Um, you know, and, and when it really starts to hit the fan, you know, they live in, you know, our neighborhoods. They're just regular folks. They aren't behind gated communities. And of course, the agenda is to another polarization that will create an armed conflict someday. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to um, study into that more. And uh, because the, the moment the police, you know, I've seen some pictures in Europe where the police take off their helmets and they join the ranks of the people. And, and I, that brings tears to my eyes. And, and the moment we start seeing that here in the States, it's game over. Well, especially yeah. since in the States, we have sheriffs too, which are elected officials. Yeah. So, uh, that's a that's a huge huge thing that we have for sovereignty here that our founding fathers and that the original states understood in the counties and we do have local jurisdictions superseding that superseding the uh, police force that has been militarized and federalized uh, so I the last thing I want to see though is the sheriffs battling the police you know and so um, we need what you're doing and it's the it's through peace it's through consciousness it's through education right it's not through yes. uh, arms and, and, and violence. No, yeah. no, exactly. We're not yeah. about like creating some kind of a militia or independent Correct. police force. We're, we're about informing the people about our natural rights and encouraging them to speak out. And uh, we have a legal team forming inside now of Police for Freedom, international lawyers who are putting together documents, which we are in the process of putting on the website. So we're going to have uh, law.policeforfreedom.org where we have documents for different countries. So when the police officer doesn't want to enforce uh, unlawful statutes or acts or laws, then they can use these documents to legally protect themselves. Um, so we are helping them to become empowered, too, because their rights are also being abused. And so, so that's what's happening. The, the police are becoming more aware of their natural rights. And um, something amazing I want to share in, in the Netherlands, when the police for freedom started, it was started by a guy who was actually head of one of the police unions there. And, uh, but he's always been a bit of an activist. He's an incredible guy. He's worked for the police for 30 years. He worked as a like street police, as a, as a riot police. And then he went into detective work. And he was like solving murder cases and he's his specialities interrogation. So this guy is like really brilliant, strategic mind. And uh, he started creating these marches in the Netherlands to outsmart the police, because every time they asked for uh, an authorization from the state, uh, it got denied. So even one time they declared that they're going to do a march in a city without asking for permission. The city went into lockdown, the only city in, in Holland. <laughs> so, so they see, okay, they're going to try and prevent us from marching. So he created this new concept called the puzzle march. <laughs> and it worked so well. It's incredible. He got tens of, he got over 10,000 people moving across Netherlands to meet in one place. And they had, they had veterans and military guys uh, creating like a military operation to get this march happening. And what they would do is they use social media to give 
clues at a certain hour to move to a certain location. And it started 7 a.m. In, in the day of the march. Nobody knew where the march was going to be. Nobody. And they would say, okay, 7 a.m., move to this district. Then, okay, 8 a.m., move here. And they would give these clues. And the, by the time they got to the place where everyone met, there was one police guy in a, in a bicycle. <laughs> wow. So they, they didn't catch on. They didn't know where they're going to be. So they managed to do this march, although it was locked down and totally, you know, like not allowed. And uh, they've done it four times now. Well, the first two times was a puzzle march, uh, was incredible. The third time, the government actually got in touch with them and said, we want no more, no more puzzle marches. We're going to facilitate your march. We're going to authorize Because oh, <laughs> they, they were so humiliated by that. So then the last two marches have been in bigger cities and totally authorized and facilitated by the local police and the local mayors. And... Um, it's incredible what they've accomplished there. Now, the last march they did was in July, and uh, they had just had these floods in, in Limburg, where you had, you know, tons of houses and, and people even dying, you know, covered in water. And with the help of the march, they collected a couple thousand euros, and they put together like three trucks worth of blankets and mops and, and food and, and clothing from the march. So they use that to, to help the flood victims. So they're starting to create something totally like out of the ordinary with the help of the police. And because they know people, they know how to do operations. They know how to get people together very fast. So they're using their knowledge from the police to, to help actually what they're supposed to be doing. So it's, it's possible. They're doing it there. Oh, <clears throat> that's amazing. And what, what a different mindset as soon as the police are actually back in their true role of service, that will change your consciousness forever. It's going to be pretty hard for them to go back to the old thing. Yeah. Yeah. And this guy, Dennis, who's, who's running it, they've taken his license away so he can, he, he can no longer work as a police, but they, he still has to pay. <laughs> so <laughs> he's getting paid to be doing these marches, which nice. is pretty brilliant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're up against it right now here um, because there are so many well-meaning, spiritual, loving people who haven't, I don't know what it is. They're kind of entrapped with the idea of the narrative, the COVID narrative. And we're seeing it here right now. We, like I said, in the beginning of this, of this chat, we have what's our, I guess, the biggest COVID outbreak uh, right now in our community here. And my wife as an RN is dealing with it in the hospital and, you know, they're overwhelmed and it's, it, with, when people are sick, people then in the community are in fear and then they tend to go more with the agenda and those that are well-meaning, like for instance, we know some people who are initiating a, so they're for it. So in the hospital last Saturday, and I don't know if you know what's going on in California, but the governor now is mandating all teachers, health workers, everyone one has to get the vaccine has to get whoops said the word has to get the jabba dabba do uh and and so um there was a demonstration outside against it and then i just got an email from a well well-meaning person who was just flabbergasted that people would dare do this during a health crisis um, that there'd be a demonstration against uh, a mandatory experimental uh, genetically modifying injection um, and so now they're going to go counter there and bring, bring support to the health workers who were now demoralized by that demonstration. My question to you is, how do we, you see the psychological tricks at play here. 
And obviously there are people, my wife is in the hospital, works at the hospital and seeing these people who are deathly ill that are, that are suffering from hypoxia, cannot get oxygen. And like I said, it is interesting that 5G has now been initiated in the town here. Um, and there are some dire connections with these technologies, with the injections, with everything that's going on. I guess my question is, how do we navigate these like very tricky psyops and these tricky, I don't know, this situation that's been so brilliantly at play for those well-meaning people who also want to be activated and help, but are coming at it from the other direction saying, how dare you, you are putting grandma at risk by going out and, and, and marching against these supposedly medical interventions that are here to help and to, to fix the world. Mm. It's a tricky thing. Yeah, it's, it's really, there's so many levels to it. And it's, it's just, I like what, what I normally do in these things is I try and ask questions and say, look, I'm not against you. I'm not in a different side from you. I'm concerned just as you, but have you ever come to consider that what if they're not dying from a virus, but from something else that we could prevent? You know, have you ever considered that? And then talk about the voiceless victims of these lockdowns and pandemics. And to say, yeah, you're looking at the screen and the, the map is going red and the numbers are going higher. But do you realize that there was more people who died from, from suicide in Japan in November than all of 2020 put together? Do, do, do you know that there are parents whose child's uh, children are dying alone in the hospital they can't attend or people who can't give birth, you know, with their partners there that are you seeing the scope of this thing? Are you sure that this is the right approach? For mine is just asking questions and bringing out the other part of suffering, talking about the children in South, South America, how 20 million are starving because the schools were shut down and their primary warm meal of the day which came from the school was taken away from them you know what about all the farmers whose crops were you know destroyed because they couldn't literally get to the crops to harvest in time so what is actually going on and just bringing all these things that should if, if their reasoning is compassion then bring just more fuel into the fire and talk talk about the other topics that should also trigger the compassion in them yeah spot yeah, on well said yeah. And I think that's, and, I think in, in one second, yeah. Like with going with the children thing, I think that's a great thing because in the U S uh, children uh, suicides five times up five times since, since this started. And um, we know that throughout the world, there is no evidence, even if you're a mainstream normie, there is no evidence of any child, um, uh, you know, passing on COVID to any adult teacher or any human. So, or yeah. any adult. So yeah, that's a great way to pull the heartstrings is go with the children. Go ahead, Bear. No, I, I was going to say, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, if you can, you know, reach somebody's emotional body in that way, for sure it's the best because, you know, we've spent a lot of hours on this platform and I've been interviewed on a lot of other venues as well, just giving my experience as far as, you know, as a bioterrain specialist, which is contrary to the germ theory and uh, proving it with my own eyes and experience it, you know, the way I learned in conventional medicine is not the way it works. But, you know, when we just get out there with a lot of data dumps and information and proof and all the, you know, people, because we're emotional beings, we aren't really intellectual beings, in my opinion, you know, people won't even look at it in the first place. So I think the only, uh, 
yeah, the only avenue is just to try to reach somebody's humanity on an individual basis and, and go at it that way. And, and of course, the, the narrative gets even more brilliant because the more people get sick from other causes, and then, of course, it's used, you know, in one of those, uh, uh, you know, demonization parts of the, the genocide 10 steps, which is to blame the folks, uh, you know, for what you're creating yourself and categorize them as such. So that's what's going on right now. And what's really alarming here is the rhetoric is really, you know, raising temperature relative to demonizing anybody that's out there, you know, prepping, growing food, uh, not going along with the dialogue uh, into natural health, uh, you know, all the things that we've been at for a long time, which we're actually starting to come into vogue. But now all of a sudden, those very same things are being demonized by the so-called community that was priding itself and being open-minded in years past. So, um, yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, we keep doing what we're doing. Uh, people that are wake up, you know, are going to, we keep creating, you know, uh, an alternative parallel system. So there's something to fall back on and it's incumbent to us to do that. But uh, what else um, would you like to talk about today? Anything? I know you have so many involvements and you've been very generous. You've been here with us a long time. I don't want to, you know, um, overstay our welcome here. So uh, how, anything else you'd like to talk well, maybe, about? Well, maybe some poetry. Oh, yeah. Oh, that would be <laughs> yeah, nice. Sure. Awesome. Uh, okay, awesome. let's see. Um, okay, I'll, I'll share one that came to me when I was um, still living in London. And uh, I remember that was already, I was in a, in a time of my life where I'd already come to see that everything that I had adored before uh, was actually some kind of a perversion. So the, the city itself in London was becoming unbearable for me. And I remember even uh, walking up from the, the, the metro station, uh, which is uh, this huge, you know, um, what do you call it? escalator. And on both sides, there are these posters. And I would just see, like in the day live, I would see that what's actually, what they're actually saying. And I would actually have to, I'd have to do this because I could feel just the bombarding and the invasion of my consciousness like every second going in London. It was like the, the hub. It is the hub of black magic in the world. It is so sinister. So anyway, it was becoming unbearable for me. And one time I went into this nice little veggie cafe trying to get some kind of a oasis out of that hell that I was experiencing in London. And I put on this track uh, by air called Venus. And I don't know, this poem just came to me uh, like this, just every word. Um, so I'll just read it now. Um, it's called The Fall of Man. And so we fall from, to, from the grotesque castles paved with rotten fruit of the garden that once was. Our brilliance stained with insignificant worry, our mind stale, stuck in a dead loop. Fostered we were, given a chance to be born in the vast love of our earthly mother. But our innocence, we at first instance declare a weakness, exchange it for false futures and gross cravings. No more do green blades of grass greet me. No more do winged creatures delight me. No more do I stand before my creator in awe. No obsessed by my own reflection in the mirror, 
myself I adore. On this earth, an arrogant force I walk. All beings fragile I stomp on, taken life, never even blink in an eye. Denied have I the immortal wisdom in me. Severed have I my divine origin. Annihilated have I the human within. What is it I want now? Nothing, please. Purify me of my greed. Take away my everything. An innocent being make of me. Otherwise, end me. That was lovely. And when, when did you write that again? Uh, must have been 2013. Oh, wow. Very on point for today. Thank you so much for that. It makes uh, me emotional when I read these Made poems. me emotional. <laughs> it brings a tear to my eye as well. Another one, a bit more contemplative. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Where is it? I can't find my own poems. <laughs> uh, now, have you um, published any of these? Or? Yeah. So I have this. I have this book. Um, it's no longer in print, but it's it's called the 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 dwelling of a seeking soul. Oh, that's beautiful. I like the cover. And the back is is me from my first experience with the with ayahuasca in the jungle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and this is where I grew up, the forest in yeah, Finland. I, that's uh, what I figured. Yeah. Yeah. So. There is a channel I watch on YouTube, and I believe she's either Finnish or. Um, I believe she is. And she just kind of lives out in the country in Finland and, and does all the traditional things, uh, uh, you know, that going into the winter uh, ice dips and going and collecting pine and making essential oils. And I'm, I'm blanking I know on that channel. Yeah. And she goes out and yeah, just sings it. out into the into the the snowy fields and it's just like for me that's She's so jumping amazing. into water holes uh, carved into the ice and yeah everything. yes it's just so romantic right it's just like oh man is that good for the soul right now to watch that uh have you returned to your mother country of late i did go there uh in the springtime uh in april I went for a couple of weeks. Yeah, the, the nature in Finland is something else. It, you feel that land is very ancient and, and the trees are just so tall and there's something. The air is so pure. It, it, it's incredible. The sky, I feel it's more blue than anywhere else. <laughs> That's because it's so in the north. But yeah, it's amazing. Okay, this one is from my love of nature. Okay. Um, this is fairly recent. This is from uh, a couple of months ago. Okay. Like dew drops glistening on a silken web, sewn together like luminous pearls are our days on this earth. Each one unique, bearing the memory of the moments that gave it birth. The most grand creation, our life, composed of fragile substance that at any moment can dissipate and return to whence it came. 
but may it return ever wiser, singing stories of the morning rays. Lovely. Mm. Yeah. Man, there's something to be said about nature, tell you that. Um, and that is something that is part of the dystopic future of the transhumanist uh, agenda, right? Is, is nature will be bye-bye and we'll all be in this robotic um, kind of Blade Runner world. Uh, and I think humanity is saying, no, I don't think the Aquarian age is going to be that. That's the Piscean dream that is shattered. And I think it's already over personally. I think the Pisceans, I'm really loving this idea. I was listening to a recent podcast where they were kind of relating the Pisceans to the, to the Aquarians. And I think the gates and these, all these, these like kind of humorous archetypal villain type characters, the Schwabs and the, and all these people are the old Piscean era kind of villains that are are trying so hard to hold on. And it's it's gone already. It's gone. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the shedding of the scabs of that world uh, and the scarring that will be left will be some of these places that will be uh, take a while to come back. Maybe some of these cities and the future, the Aquarian age, which is going to be decentralized, nature focused, community focused, tribe focused. Um, kind of going back to the times of the, the Gemini, age of Gemini, which was very much like that. It was tribal. It was much less warlike. People were, like you were saying, in the, in the indigenous cultures, were heart were really permaculturists, you know, living on this garden planet in the proper way, in at least a much better way. So I'm very hopeful for where we're going. And Henna, I think you're, you embody that spirit so perfectly in your activism and in your spirituality and in your messaging and in your art. And that's another really big, important aspect of, of this future is the art and the creative, you know, improvisation of the human spirit. So, yeah. And that's, that's what you call real science. It's the merging of uh, heart and mind and you working as one. And I remain optimistic because in all my years of medicine, the way I practice is when I saw symptoms, uh, I knew that signified that the healing phase was already underway. And that's what we're seeing on the planet right now. It's the healing phase and things just have to come visible to the surface in order to complete it. So we can't get seduced by what we're seeing because that's not the truth. I, I resonate with that 100%. We say this also in the healing arts that when something is coming to the surface, it's because it's, it's on its way out. And that's when it can be diagnosed and that's when it can be liberated. And, and also so true, Mikey, what you said about the creativity. Another thing the indigenous say is that unless you've discovered your creativity, you're not really truly a human being because we are creator beings, right? So whether the creativity comes in the form of doing the incredible work that you guys are doing with your plant alchemy and your, your gardens and your, your amazing festivals, consciousness raising workshops on this beautiful podcast, or whether it's, you know, making music and, and, or cooking or, or whatever, it's, we all have to find that creative spark and then nurture it and, and really just dedicate time for it. Because that is, is what will remind us of what it truly means to be a human being on this earth. Amen. So absolutely. And Henna, uh, next time you find yourself uh, in the Redwoods here doing something, you think we could entice you up to our neck of the woods? Because we're probably just a stone's throw away from where you go. That would be amazing. I, I would love to come and say hello and, and see the, the amazing we community have, that you're building. Yeah, we have plenty of room for you. 
thank you. <laughs> I look forward to that. I, 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 I will manifest it somehow. Yes, you and your <laughs> lovely husband. We can go deep into all sort. We well, we can jam out, play some music, sit around a fire, and jump in the beautiful Smith River. That's what everybody loves to do when they come. The healing waters of the Smith, and um, we look forward to that. I'm already seeing it happening, so it's going to happen. So. Uh, hey, <laughs> thanks so much, Hannah. You are such a spark of joy and energy, and we're so thankful that you're on this plane with us right now. And um, we, where can people find out more about you and your activism and your art and your poetry? What's the best website to go to? Well, just uh, go head on over to my main website, hennamaria.community. And from there, you'll find links to everywhere else. I've got a Telegram channel as well and Police for Freedom, Dawn of Peace. The other organizations so just hennamaria.community and from there you can contact me as well beautiful and ho hopefully someday uh my fi family and i will make it back out to spain and go to that beautiful beach in alicante by the the castile is it castile de santa barbara i'm trying to remember the name of the the castle there which was awesome because i grew up i was in santa barbara for a long time we're like oh look at this beautiful place oh wow and uh come out into uh malaga and all the, in, in beautiful spain because we love it there and we love the food there so um hey thanks so much we'll let you go hannah uh have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, let's stay in contact stay in touch surely thank you so okay. much both of you thank you thank hey, you hannah and thank everybody out there for joining us today. Lovely chat. Uh, we love our community. If you enjoyed this, please share it. Give us a like. Give us a thumbs up. Uh, share it with your friends and family. That helps get the word out. Uh, as Henna said, you know, people are just still waking up. And I think actually it's just starting. I think for the the great majority is just going to start now. I think what this is what this is all happening. This is so please share this with friends and family and get, get them inspired to see beyond the Maya. We love you. Get outside, get your hands in the dirt, grow, grow, go grow something, go for a hike in nature. She is the best teacher. We love you. We'll see you next week. We have uh, our author soul Luckman on next week. Check out his books. That's going to be a really fun talk. Take care guys. Love you. <laughs>